podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. Any opportunity for me to talk to you is a privilege. Um, our friendship is so deep that we've only seen each other, I think, twice the last 15 years. Uh, but but we did speak on the podcast half a year ago. We had a great exchange. Um, we do message each other from time to time. And they're usually like sincere compliments that we send each other. You're usually a lot nicer than I am. And you're very like, you know polite and kind and decent. Before we started recording, you just scolded me for about 30 minutes of how I'm a bad person, but a great host. So I really appreciate that. You're, that was uh, really a 10 second comment. And I also said tons of other good things. I said, you're going to be fine. You're going to find a great job, great career. You're going to fall in love again. You're going to be fine. I only remember the bad, which is bad person, great host. <laughs> <laughs> I said better host than friend. You're right. You're just right. I should. Better, you know? I could have said as be- as good as before. I could have just said that. Yeah, and that, that is something I need to acknowledge is for the episode. Classic. You, yeah. you You're gave, welcome. You, you, know, gave, I don't, you know, my dad doesn't say a lot of things. You're welcome. I shared that with you. You gave me the answer that I've been looking for. Whenever someone asks Rani Kifa, what yeah. do you say? As good as. Because you don't want to be a downer and be like, oh, everything's horrible. It's like, as, you know, as good as before. As good as before. So, I owe that to you. Now. Our friendship is like, you know, we're, we're good. We're back. Yeah, I'm still waiting for you to teach me something, but Meshachal, you're welcome. I, I, I don't think I've learned anything from you, but that's okay. That's okay. Let's say this is like... That's, that's <laughs> you just said thank you for sharing that comment. You know, you that's true. That's true. Like, you know what? We should leave this to the pre-recording. I think this is, it's like destiny that we're going to... I like, I like the friction. I like the friction. I don't know how long I'll have lights. Let's record. With that perfect segue, uh, thank you once again for <laughs> joining the episode. Uh, I'm glad you've come with your preferred beverage. I have my, uh, my iced coffee. You have your iced mabarif. And we're going to talk about many things that I think resonate with both of us. And something that's worth noting before we started recording, uh, you asked how we met. And I kind of just remembered recently, so I'll be fair. Uh, we met at AUB, not in a class. Not, uh, I don't think we were, I think I'm a little older than you, actually. I may be older than you, but, but. Uh, You're we're bo- quite a bit older, but that's okay. I'm 39. Quite a bit older. Give me a break. I'm 35. I'm a, a little older, a little older. Hey, like okay. five years. Okay, we're, we're both not expiring anytime soon. That <laughs> said, that said, uh, I vividly remember our first encounter, and it was one that you taught me the way of activism. And I'll explain. I don't know if you'll remember this. This is going back to 2000 and, might, might be 2007. 
So this is a year after the summer war. Um, there's a lot of activism happening throughout the throughout Beirut, and um, there were human chain events happening around the Barakat building in Sodico, and there were, like people were seeing each other that in that way, and you literally took me and you said you come. You took me, and I don't remember how. Maybe we were in the same car, or maybe different cars. I really don't remember. But you took me to an event, and it was an Eshafi. And for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it or the exact topic. But I, for some reason, was sitting at the main table. You're to my left. Gilbert Dumit is to my right. <laughs> and suddenly, I'm like attending a uh, the Future of Lebanon <laughs> panel, right? And I should not have been there. And people are looking at me. They're like, who the hell are you? And I'm looking at them. I'm like, I don't know. Who the hell are you? And you're looking at me. You're like, yes, Johnny, yes. The future, the future is good. I'm glad you're here. I'm like, who is this person? So that's our first encounter. And you were very, you were very kind to me. I think, we, I think we may have spent an hour after that just talking. But that's sort of a nice way of starting a friendship. And we'd see each other regularly from time, I mean, in different events. And they largely focused on reform, but various degrees of reform. And this is really early because it's nothing like what we're seeing now. It's not that kind of energy. But, but it's just proof that you've been committed to this country and the future of Lebanon for a long time. And in my eyes, I mean, it's going back 13 years. It probably goes back much earlier. But all that said, that, these are reasons I like to talk to you. Because uh, you have skin in the game. I don't like these cliche terms, but it's true. Uh, you're not leaving Lebanon. You're sticking it out. And we're concerned about the electricity going out. But we're still, both of us, in different ways, through different mediums maybe, uh, we're both passionate about Lebanon. And uh, yeah, those are the reasons I like talking to you. And also, it's worth noting, because you reminded me, that you're now a, <clears throat> and you said, <clears throat> you're not just a professor, you can say it. You say it. Well, I, I want to hear you say it, because I, I mean, you I know. Just, I just made promotion to associate professor with tenure. Associate. Doesn't mean much in a crisis, but I'm really happy with that. Associate professor with tenure. So your name will appear with that title, and I'll, I'll caps lock that title so it shows. It's proof. Mabruk. It's worth noting. Mabruk. Um, Carmen, you're not just an academic, but you're also, I think, uh, you're in a way able to vent your anger through academia properly. And case in point is your new era pieces, which I've been following the last few months. And it's almost like it starts out as a dissertation and then diminishes into pure rage <laughs> and then ends again on an academic footing. So it's kind of like exploring your own opinions through a very short and concise piece. We're going to get into a, a lot of this, but before, before all of that, um, I know life is difficult right now in Lebanon. And I know that we, we spoke about this just before recording, whether or not it's time to go back, the severe disadvantages of going back right now, what it's like to live there right now. Aside from the obvious examples, which we kind of talked about, electricity is one, you mentioned trash, and just the, the breakdown of the state in, in, in many different ways. I'm curious about your own day-to-day -day life right now. Living in Badaro, AUB campus is closed. The social life that's associated with Badaro is, I think, constrained to a large part. And, um, I mean, this is a feeling we're sharing the world over, but just your own day-to-day -day routine. Has it, has it changed much in the last few months? 
um, has it changed dramatically since October last year? And maybe we can start from there and then pick up where we left off when we spoke in January. Yeah, I just want to say thanks for having me back again. I thought that I had said everything that there was to say in January, but it also feels like a whole different world after everything that happened to Beirut and to the world in the last six months. So I really appreciate the chance. And, and for me, it's really cathartic to be able to take a step back and, and, and you know, think about your questions. And I'd love to talk about that phase, 2007, 2008. You're so polite when, was, you're, when you're being recorded. Look at this. Look at this. I mean, I don't remember dragging you to that meeting, but it sounded like me at the time. But, yeah. but I call that phase like still believing in the system kind of thing. Like I mm. felt like all our rhetoric at the time and all the strategy was like, please, you guys need to fix it. Like there was still that faith and that, you know, if we advocate enough, if we do it in good faith, if we were from all over Lebanon, if we could do a human chain, if we could write a proposal, you know, there was a lot of, there, there was a lot of faith, which gets me into like where we are today. And it's really a, it's really a crisis of, of faith. Um, I think a lot has been written on the socioeconomic dimensions. I, I won't add, add to it much. I'll say I'm one of the lucky people that, that whose salary was, Quite, I mean, I was quite rich before the crisis. And then divide that by nine and imagine your life. So the dollar went up from 1,500 to 9,500. 9, so literally, if you're comfortable and probably your listeners are, are comfortable or, you know, have, have, have jobs that they like and that secure a good living, you divide that by nine. So, But I'll not talk only about that there's no electricity and the fact that, you know, five years later, after the protests around the garbage, there's still gra garbage in the streets. Yeah. Um, it's terrible. I'll also talk about that feeling of feeling really locked. I mean, you said I'm staying here and I am staying here, but it almost doesn't make a lot of sense because your day to day has changed, not only in terms of what you can afford. I mean, you can't you can't leave the country. You know, Schengen states won't take us. No, nobody will take us. That's fine, but it's also a lot of self-censorship. It's a lot of fear. It's a lot of young people getting arrested over Twitter posts. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of concern over people that can be either character assassinated or physically hurt um, over the revolution. And it's it's really a time to lay low. It's I feel like it's not a time to build. And it's sad and difficult and destitute. I'll start with that. No, I appreciate the initial bleakness because I think it's, it's ill-advised, I think, to be naive and optimistic given what's happening. So I appreciate that. It is a, it is a bleak assessment. But that said, that said, this determination, and I'm, I, I want to start with this because that's how I know you. Um, you're not new to this world. I mean, you've been pushing through this mess for a long time. It's your professional life. It's also your adult life. So that in that sense, what keeps you committed right now? Beyond, beyond the visa restrictions, which are obvious, but if you really did try, I think you could find a job abroad. And you probably could find a career abroad if you really wanted to. And I say this as someone with that kind of position now at AUB, you don't have to hone your skills abroad. I think you just take them with you. So in, in that sense, you're deliberately choosing to push through this moment. I want to get that reflection out of you, if, if, if you will, because I, I feel it too. I'm not in New York right now by, by choice. And I, I look forward to returning to Beirut, even when all you hear is thousands of opinions to the contrary, saying it's the wrong time, you're making a mistake, don't do that. That said, I have that same kind of inertia. And I, I'm just curious why, why you still push through, even when you're able to sort of acknowledge, and I got that from you, that things are as bad now as they can be. I mean, it's reached the point now, I mean, the lira could devalue more, and it, it, it may, but that's beyond it now, that's beyond the point. It's, the fact is... Things look very bad for the immediate and, and sort of maybe medium term 
and it's just there's no hope. So what keeps you what keeps you trying against all odds? Yeah, so I think I mean you touched on a couple of things. I mean it, whether it's naive to stay, whether it's naive to try, and I feel that that is a debate that's going on a lot among activists in Beirut. Um, mm. This idea between the soft and the radical, the idea between you know leave or give it all you can, and I'm becoming increasingly convinced. Uh, that hope is also a political choice and that staying is a political choice. Um, mm-hmm. That's not to say, because I, I because I hear, you know, a lot of friends and colleagues kind of like making fun, you know, you know it's like, oh, you're so positive. Like, I, you know, I'm not stupid. I've, I've been studying this for 10 years. I understand. I did a PhD on this. I grew up here. Our parents grew up here. It's enough. I understand what's going on. But I feel like... Um, I feel there's a weird part of me that if people here are depressed and broke and sitting in the dark, I'd rather do it with them than be abroad and looking at them. Yeah. Uh, but that is also a privileged stake because, you know, I don't got like two kids to feed. I mean, I, if I had commitments, if I had a family, if I had to like make ends meet for me, I worry for myself. And so far, even with dividing by nine, I'm still okay. And I feel like I'd rather be here and be depressed with everybody else and fight and be really angry rather than watching it from abroad. Uh, and I also feel that there is a role for, 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 you know, people like me, I don't know, people who love their job or love their friends or love their neighborhood, you know, to, to, to pick up the pieces, like who will recreate Lebanon? Who will recreate the economy? I mean, you talked about being in the university, who is going to stay and teach these students and produce the research? And I feel whether it's, it's misguided or perhaps I'm delusional, I feel like I'm needed here. And, and I really am. I mean, I'm needed to go on the weekends and cheer up my parents. I mean, She's painting and he's gardening and they're trying to do their best. And you go have lunch and, and have a chat for me. I feel I need it. I'm not needed to call, you know, from Skype, wherever. And I'm needed for the students and I'm needed to figure out, you know, what's going to be the next thing about everything that we're doing. So, you know, I'm not unhappy. I'm angry and frustrated and, and sad, really heartbroken. But I'm not, I'm not like hopeless. I don't know how, to, I don't know if that makes sense. It does. I, I, there's a and word. for a lot of us, that there's a lot of people staying by behind yeah yeah but i i mean i i personally and i the reason i didn't want to structure this episode so much is because i'd like the friendship to kind of shine a bit because it is it is there i i think uh purpose matters and i feel a purpose that may have resonated with people before me and i i you know more and more i look back into sort of the arts during the war or maybe statements issued during the war not by not by politicians or anything like that but by faculty or by sort of musicians or by anyone filmmakers there's that sort of need to stay but it's it's more than just a need it's almost like it's your life's calling and abandoning it would be so painful and unnecessary mm-hmm. because then it would just ma- render your life meaningless i i see that at least in my case so that's the inertia it's uh if i'm away from lebanon all i'm doing is reflecting on lebanon so to me it kind of keeps that need in check it keeps that purpose in check, but deep down, I'd rather be doing this in Lebanon as well. So I don't know if that if that resonates with you, and it, just that kind yeah. of yeah, that sort of you you take yourself out of it, and then you're sort of starting over again, and that's not what you want to do. Yeah, and um, I mean, before the crisis and before everything went to hell in Lebanon, I was getting increasingly interested um, in ordinary people's lives and the mm. backdrop of very big events, very large events, right? And, I, and of my second book project is speaking to Syrian refugees who built a life abroad and they can't go back or they don't want to go back. Mm. But their whole narrative is like, 
oh, like ISIS went in and oh my God, I was talking to my cousin on the phone or, you know, yeah, yeah. that's when, oh, like 2000, yeah, like, you know, this happened. Yeah, of course. I remember the, the massacre. That was the summer I met my fiance. Like I'm increasingly interested. And this is what, how our grandparents speak, right? I mean, you talk to anybody yeah. in Lebanon above 50, they will recall, you know, major catastrophes, wars, civil strife, but life kind of continued. So I was starting to get like intellectually interested in ordinary people's lives at the backdrop and making that political because, you know, the choice to, to love and to marry and to stay and to have kids in the war. We were born in the war. Every time I'd see my mom, I'm like, how could you have three kids in, in, in a catastrophe? I mean, the salaries in the late 80s were much worse than now. I mean, my yeah. dad woke up yeah. and whatever they had, they had like a hundred bucks, right? Yeah. And they had two kids. So I'm very much interested in the way that ordinary people relate to extraordinary events. That's not to say that everybody should stay here and, and fight the fight. And that's not to say that it has to be an either or, but I feel myself part of this narrative of hope and survival. And I find it very political. Um, I, I like that. So I like whatever that. Whatever that means. I mean, no, but I like the bridge between hope and, and political, because that's not something I hear often. So you've made it almost like an, a, a point, in a sense, almost like an action, and that I am staying Because I feel, yeah. I feel, sorry, I'll say something really briefly, Ronnie. Like, I feel like the first 10 years of our lives, we're trying to prove that they, they're terrible politicians, they suck, and now they've proven it. And I feel like I need to shift gears from, even in my writing, saying, oh, they're terrible, power sharing, sectarianism mm -hmm. is horrible, to like, what's, what's shifting gears in this crisis, in this pandemic? And I'm finding it, it's about hope, and right. that's politics. And I like also, you said something, but it may not be entirely true. I'm going to challenge you on one thing. Uh, you said you don't have kids, therefore there's no responsibility. But I think if you had kids, you'd probably still stay. That's a gut feeling. I, I don't know. I mean, I, this is hypothetical, but I think it, it goes beyond that kind of, you know, wanting to make sure your kids can live abroad. I have a feeling, I have a feeling you'd be living with your kids in Badaro. But that's just a gut feeling. I could be but wrong. I think on. that's a different ballgame because a lot of colleagues who are leaving now and really best friends, and I mean, I'll cry in a minute, are leaving also for a family choice, right? I mean, you, you don't want your kid to drink bad water and not yeah, be able course, to draw money course. from the machine. I mean, that's a different set of priorities. But You're I right. feel like you know, being on my own, I can, as long as I can take care of myself, I am here. No, I'm not crazy, but as long as I can take yeah. care no, of myself. Yeah, no, that's, that's well said, well said. Carmen, I'm going to just quote you to you on occasion. I'm not going to make this an, an obsession mm -hmm. with your pieces. But there are some things that I thought, they, they resonated with me. And I'd like to cherry pick a few here and there. Uh, one comes from, uh, uh, I think, the most recent piece from uh, your New Arab series. It's Corruption, Not Coronavirus, is Ravaging Lebanon. This was released the end of April, uh, April 3rd. So I'm just going to, this is a short quote, but I'd like to gauge your mind on this because it, it speaks to the moment. We are, after all, a very superstitious nation. We rarely use the word cancer, in quotes. And when some, someone has cancer, we just say that they are suffering from, quote, that illness. But with time, and when the extent of the damage becomes clear, this government will be remembered as a cancer. I like the choice of the word cancer, and it speaks to a body that is dying, and one that is not being treated. And it's almost like foreshadowing the death of Lebanon, and that if we're going to explain it one day, it's that, yeah, there was a cancer, the cancer spread to the point that this government is literally the cancer. And can I just gauge your mind on this? Are you, are, you, are you at this point still looking for this kind of treatment, chemotherapy, or are we beyond that now? That the body is dead 
And best case scenario is that we try to sort of start over, start fresh. And this goes back to the passions of 13 years ago, the last 10 years. Is reform now sort of out of the realm? And it's just now it's really about starting over. Because that, that word cancer, I think it offers two choices, depending at, at its stage. One is that we can still find a way to live that looks less and less likely. The other one is the patient will die and a new country and, and something new will be born in the process. Actually, the, the inspiration for the piece and for the sentence was like how smiley they were when the coronavirus occurred. Like I felt this government came obviously to stifle the revolution, to say, you know, nothing can happen if we don't bring it. And it's a March 8th government. Everybody knows this as well back. But I felt like they were like happy. I mean, they were smirking. They're like, we have decided that you should all shut down your houses and we're going to save it. So like the inspiration from that was the superstition of, of, of Lebanese and of Arabs. Like, we don't even mention that era. Like that yeah. era was the cancer era. Yeah. And no, I don't think that... There is any hope for reform. I don't only say this. Everybody says this. Five-year-old kid, 95-year-old <laughs> man. But also a lot of um, donors and, and, and people, you know, academics, technical assistance people, whatever you want to call them, who have been watching this for a very long time. And they would tell you that, you know, two years ago, three years ago, definitely 10 years ago, 13 years ago, at least politicians paid lip service for small technical things like e-government and municipal reform, right. all of that. Yeah. There was at least that women's rights, blah, blah. And now there's there's none of that. So I think we have to start over. And I think in a very, you know, sort of abstract way, that is where the politics of hope and staying like plays in. How do we start over? And the whole world is having this conversation. The problem in Lebanon that it's exacerbated by multiple crises. But if you follow any conversation in the world, the crisis of the university is everywhere. What do we teach people? Where is public health in the narrative? You know, what kind of government? Trump wants to postpone the American elections. I mean, Ahlin, right? I mean, so I feel like in a way, like what we're living is much more intense and more horrible, but it's not like we're disconnected from a global thinking about this can't be fixed. We have to start over. I don't know what that means, but that's how it feels in Beirut. So that, so what you're describing, and I, I mean, I'll bring it up from now, that sort of the, the friction around the AUB story in, in terms of layoffs and, and sort of the, the, the AUB's budget and what it will look like long-term. I mean, there is a crisis, and it's a shared crisis. You're absolutely right. This is not just AUB. This is the world over. But, but I like that you're connecting Lebanon's problems the, w- the way they are connected to other problems. And that kind of touches on an earlier piece that you shared in the New Era. It's Beirut under quarantine, why decades of unshackled neoliberalism left Lebanon in extreme danger from coronavirus. Now, there are points here that resonate, I think, in many different countries, many different settings. I'll just go through the four points. You, you mentioned neoliberal capitalism as one, uh, racism, migrant workers, and crowded prisons as another one. Uh, there's also day-by-day mode, which I liked. And it's, uh, sorry, those, those, there are three, my mistake, not four. Those are the three. I kind of, I, I can't count. <laughs> <laughs> you like the title, so that's a fourth. Not bad. Not bad. You're right. I did bold all four. That's true. Well, well played, Carmen. Well played. But but these are issues that make it in any in any setting. And the Lebanese one seems one of extreme, rather than sort of one that can be managed, given given COVID nineteen and given what we're going through. I just want to go in them as much as possible without sort of going too deep into each one. Just sort of like a, re- a reflection on what exactly you mean by neoliberal capitalism, at least in the Lebanese experience. Because for me, that word, that word, when I hear it, or that kind of, that angle, to me, it seems like 
there are many countries that are able to cope with that kind of excess, and they, they manage. In the Lebanese case, it seems to be the most front and center one that you're describing. So what is it about neoliberal capitalism right now that prevents that much-needed reform from happening? Without getting into necessarily the like names or even the political parties, not that, just the general framework. Because many countries will, will usher through this moment. Why is Lebanon paying the ultimate price for, for, that, for that factor? I mean, th this can also be a very long conversation, but I'll be really brief. Is that because the countries that you mentioned have a minimum safety net and a mm. minimum welfare. Mm. The problem with neoliberal capitalism is that after the civil war, a bunch of men that led the war went down from their tanks, put on their suits and decided that they're in it to divide the spoils of the state and projects, you know, that were funded and infrastructure budget was what kept them together. And the average person can go and buy medicine. That is the problem. And the article is about why we don't have enough hospital beds. And it's not because we're poor. It's not because we can't. It's because the, right. the mode of governance married neoliberal capitalism with sectarianism. And I think that now there's a lot also coming out about Iraq and the crisis. So it's yes. the marriage of that. I hear you well. It's not only the economic system, the capitalist system in the world, but people are still able to, to access a minimum. So yeah, that's right. the Oh, yeah. so it's, it's the blending of the sectarianism post-war yeah. environment. I see. Okay. So th does that feed into the other points then? So like, for example, issues of racism or the kafala system that everyone's been talking about, these embarrassing, uh, these embarrassing sort of video clips where people are celebrating their departure from Lebanon, Ghanaian sort of domestic workers in so much joy that they got out. This is humiliating for Lebanon and it's well-deserved joy. They, they, they need, I mean, so happy for them, and yet it's sort of, it's almost like uh, we did so bad, you know. We didn't, but is that the sectarianism story there as well? Because that doesn't seem to be a sectarian story whatsoever. That people are this system is so poorly, I mean, it shouldn't be there to begin with. But I can't imagine the sectarian narrative sort of going into that. So can we can we unpack that one? And why why does Lebanon stand out in its abuse? To domestic workers when other countries seem to find a way that's manageable yeah so first i'm i'm very pro more humiliating stories because i think <laughs> i think there's a lot that we don't we don't talk about right i think yeah. that there's a lot that, that, that we don't talk about and i worry about myself ronnie i worry that i become this kind of like poster figure for like oh hope and like reform like no no I, I you know i think more humiliation and more disastrous narrative is much needed i mean Look, simply, the way that the system was designed after the Civil War required that all of these people that wanted to govern, they get along. And they just so happened to be men. And they, you know, went to bed with religious leaders. And that, you know, fed into, that trickles down into every area of people's private and civil life. And the kafala system is a deal that is made by, you know, businesses, neoliberal businesses, capitalism, that bring in maids. And the lack of a civil court. I mean, if you wanted to go sue for being beat up, if you're a get woman from Ghana, you don't even have a court. You get sent back to your embassy. And CNN, Tamara Qiblawi, just wrote a, yes, wrote a yeah. beautiful piece, you know, about mm -hmm. the Kenyan mistreatment, the consul of, of, of these women. Basically, in Lebanon, the, the thing is, if you are an independent political voice, you're a human being, you're a person, you're poor, you're rich, you're black, you're white. If you don't, if you don't fit into this net of power sharing, sectarianism and money and capitalist project, you don't exist. It's a country in the world where we're scared of the politicians. Whereas in any democracy, politicians are scared of the people. Even in democracies that w don't work very well, they still want to appease people. Trump is trying to postpone the election because he wants the chance to talk to his voters, to get them to vote for him. He wants people to like him. 
in this part of the world, Bashir Bouzaid tells, you know, goes and says, please stop for bed, Berre, and, and light up people's homes, and he gets beat up for that. So we're scared of them. They're not scared of us. And I think, you know, we are citizens and, you know, upper middle class citizens, and we're scared of them. How does, you know, an Ethiopian worker feel living in this country? And that's your answer. So more humiliation. I think, I think the, the good thing about corona and economic collapse is everything is on the table. A lot of the things that were taboo, I see this in my students, um, they don't have the same scars we do, they don't remember the same dates we do, and they are willing to open any portfolio, any malab, and put things out in the open. So, yeah, it's disastrous what they're okay. going through. But People I'm, dropped off their maids on the street like they were right. an old, you know, an old uh, barad. I mean, I don't even throw, yeah. I don't even throw my, you know, I don't even, kaboon, kaano, object. So, yeah, well-deserved humiliation. I, I, it's structural as well, right? It's structural as well. Sure, people are also mean and racist, but it's also structural. That That is what the law allows, right? It's very similar to up to a couple of years, if a woman gets raped, the law allows the man to suggest marriage to her, and he can marry her and get away with it. It's structural. Sure, they're, you know, sorry. I no, 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 on law. the contrary, on the contrary. Like, sure, they're jerks in every society. But the thing is that the structure and the law allows for that is what I'm trying to say. Okay, before we get to the last one, the day-by-day -day mode, I just want to explore this issue of fear, this politics of mm -hmm. fear. And I think I'm, I'm trying to get to maybe a uh, an understanding of why reform seems to be impossible in Lebanese history. <laughs> and I, I know it's, a, it's like a huge thing, but I just, with these examples, and, you're, you're, and I, I fully I agree with your sentiment. Yes, you need to have more of these images to shake people and realize what we're doing. And yeah, I mean, of course, I, I meant it humiliating more like, look at how embarrassing it is. It's so bad. Yeah, yeah. it's horrible. Right, right. So I completely agree with you. The more images like that, the better. It shows just how bad things are, actually. And that's, that's needed. But I just can't put my mind around the confessional power sharing and then leaving a woman like you said, a used refrigerator by the consulate. To me, there, there's a disconnect in terms of politics as usual, or even, let's say, fear, or even, take it a step further, communal anxiety with everything we know about Lebanon, and then an individual just does that. I, I just see that as something maybe different and something that is maybe... Uh, Maybe it's almost like an individual responsibility that simply doesn't exist, that there's no accountability from within as well. So I, this is the issue I wanted to kind of explore, which is it just doesn't add up why you can live in an oppressive society and still be more decent to your housekeeper or your domestic worker. You can live in a really, really messed up authoritarian system and still have the decency to not do that. So I'm curious about that. Is this a societal problem? more than a political problem, or even for that matter, more than a relationship between the state and the citizen, or you were hinting at it earlier, gender, those issues that are there. Is this something that's maybe slightly different? Yeah, I feel like, uh, no, no, it's a trap for me either to take sides like with the system against the people or people against the system. I, I don't want to fall into that, but I would say in any society where it's legal, I mean, slavery was legal for over 150 years across mm -hmm. the world. Does mm -hmm. that mean that people are born uh, bad people? I mean, that is that is a philosophical, spiritual, mm -hmm. you know, socio. I, I always tell my students, I'm not a sociologist. I'm political scientist. I'm interested in like changing laws, changing policies. I don't care how people feel. 
right? Mm. It's not mm. about raising people's awareness. If we wanted to wait for people to accept, you know, migrant domestic workers that equal, give them, you know, space, give them like a holiday, like treat them as normal labor, like put them in the labor law and them having rights, that might take a thousand years, just as, as it might take a white marrying a black another hundred years. Muslim marrying Christian could be another 50 years. I don't know. I'm not willing to wait for that. What I'm concerned about, what I look about is that the law protects this. So these women yeah. and young men, when they arrive, their passports is taken from them. Right. And they can spend over 20, 40, 50 years working in a household, being promised a, a remittance, an aggregate amount, without them ever taking it. And it is as easy as the employer going to the makhbar and saying, she stole from me and hiding a piece of jewelry. So for me, it's, it's structural. Sure, I mean, I hear your question. Why would people you know, who are living not a great life be so oppressive? I can't answer that. I am not a you know, social psychologist. I am not a, I'm, I'm not a sociologist. But for me, in Lebanon, that's legal. That is legal. Like but, honor but, crimes yeah. in Jordan, that is legal. Like slavery in America, that's their right. The employer, it's in their right to send them back, to throw them back. They're brought in. They can't even read the contract. The contract yeah. is in Arabic. They don't That's even know what they're signing. 18-year-olds, right. 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds promised a life. So for me, it's structural and, and yeah. I mean, no, but business, I, right? I appreciate that. It's a double-edged sword because even when the law is applied in Lebanon, and it rarely is, but when it is, it's one of abuse. It's bad. <laughs> yeah. So it's not like, I mean, we, we're more familiar with laws that are excused or laws that are sort of ignored. In this case, this is a law that allows the worst the worst instincts of people to sort of to be applied and there's no consequence. So I appreciate that. But that goes more into then, it goes more into the fact that the Lebanese state doesn't exist. Or if it does exist, it's one that is sort of abusing rather than delivering services. In that sense, and I'm going to now go to the last point, the day-by-day mode, which I like, because that's the one I'm most familiar with. The sort of uh, ability to maneuver... <laughs> <laughs> any crisis and it's beyond the beyond the state it's almost like citizen initiative and you you mentioned this in several pieces that good for lebanon in terms of covid-19 and the reaction that there's almost like a well well earned praise there that they didn't wait for the minister of health or the ministry of health to deliver stages and phases and all that no citizen action and did it quite effectively at least at the start and there's been many examples like this over the years lebanese take matters into their own hands and they, they survive that way, and they, they do, they're effective. But that also points at how just poorly, poorly performing the state is today. Today, and you're saying reform is sort of beyond now. We can't, you know, that's, it's too late for that. Looking at something new. That thing that is supposed to emerge, and going back to all these activities, these panels, these grassroots ideas, everything, is this something you will... Is this something we will live long enough to actually see take hold in Lebanon? Because I sense from now, going back to October, and we're going to eventually approach the one-year marker, that things are not going to improve anytime soon. That we're looking at the long haul now. Are these aspirations maybe for the next generation, not for ours? Meaning that all we can do now is try to set the stage. And if it takes hold, great. If it doesn't, it's just a case study of why this model of governance simply should never be applied again in human history. <laughs> look at the consequences and look at what, what it delivers. It delivers a country that gradually failed <laughs> and died over time. So I, this is maybe more existential. But are you, are you now in it to maybe try to set that stage? Or do you still have hope that 
there is room for improvement in the near term because I don't see it personally, but you're, you're someone, you, you described yourself as someone who's a little more hopeful. So is there hope in that, in that mix? You didn't say it would be this hard to try to answer, answer the oh, questions. But it, it, look, it, it is you, very you, existential. You had, you, had, you had three glasses of wine last episode. It's, it, it, seemed yeah. to, it seemed to go... It was a lot re- easier. It was a lot easier. Get, a, get another gin and tonic, whatever's in your cup. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to pause the, the recording. I can pause. Actually, you know what? That'd be nice. Do you want to do no, it? No, no I'm trying. <laughs> do you want? I have to do yeah, go get one. Right. Listen, I'll, you're drinking iced tea. You're drinking iced tea. It's me, not I, fair. And I, asking I, difficult questions. Iced coffee. Iced coffee, even worse. Um, no, look, it is very existential. Uh, I don't know how to answer this. I think a lot about time, and I think about, you know, you know what our parents thought when they were younger. Um, but for sure, I mean, there's two things. But again, I'm privileged because I'm not so worried about feeding people. Um, who are relying on me, but I do think that this module has failed. And I was telling you, like, I look back at myself, 2008, 2010, 2013, we were trying to prove to the world that the model failed, right? We're trying to be like, they suck, they're corrupt, they're sectarian. I feel like right now the model has failed, even to themselves and among themselves, even with their constituency. And if the Thawra did anything, it showed that there were, you know, opposing groups from Trablus to Kferremen. It's unheard of within the dynamic of you know, Lebanon, sectarianism, urbanism and all that. So I feel like they're done. And I feel like, will I see it in my, in my lifetime? I do see it already. I mean, I see, I see young people that don't have the scars that they don't even have the same memorials for them. 2005 is like, Oh yeah, I was born yesterday. They don't understand why they can't marry somebody they love or they can't travel or they can't, you know, buy Bitcoin because their credit cards don't work. And I believe in that a lot. Will we see it in our lifetime? I mean, like, you know, complete upheaval, structural change. I think it will take time, but I feel like they've lost really all, all credibility. I mean, when Wali Jumblat invites the Mashaykh and tells them to plant hummus and, and za'atar, and, you know, when Jubran Basil appears on national TV and he has 25 lights and the activists circled it and he's saying, oh, it's not our fault. They're just, I mean, they have lost all, I mean, it's, yeah, Hezbollah is asking people to plant. To, to go with the dams that Bizre, that World Bank is supporting. I mean, it's it's not only, you know, completely contradictory policies. They got no credibility. And they got no credibility, not just with the international community, which could happen in any country. Mm. And I want to talk about this because I don't feel we should be held hostage, like what happened to Afghans and Pakistan and Kenyans and Somalia. I feel like Lebanon is headed to that path, that we are going to be doomed because they're doomed. I don't think any people should, you know, bear the grunt of bad politicians. But these people have no more credibility. So I feel, I don't know, will I live that long? Maybe I'll die tomorrow. But I feel it's inevitable. That I'm not, they have no more allies, Roni. And, and that is a geopolitical thing. It is not a Lebanese thing. But the So I, I am hopeful. But, Carmen, but then again, you know, I don't have people to worry about. Um, it seems like the IMF package is... Not going to happen, or I don't know. Of I mean, course, because they lie. Yeah. I mean, it's it's khalas. Right, right. The thing is about this moment, Roni, is that there is also a global recession. Nobody wants to give money to freaking Lebanon. Right, you're right. Uh, I'm bringing it up only because I'm I'm. I'd like to play devil's advocate here, but I'm on the same page, so it's almost like uh, I'm just trying to get. It doesn't to, show. Oh, it doesn't show that I'm on the same page? Oh, that's not good. 
Well, I mean, I'm, I'm for the most part, for the most part. It'd be you boring. Quote, quote me again. Quote me again, and it shows you're on the same page. Just quote, just quote you to you all the time. That is, no, I mean, you're clearly not my professor. <laughs> but, 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 and I don't, I don't need to get an A plus from you. I can survive with my C minus. The thing is, though, the thing is, I think it'd be a very boring conversation if we agreed 100%. So there is some, there's, I think there are common goals. And I, that's, that's a tangent. But anyway, anyway, um, I, I, oh, you made me forget what I was getting. You're good, Carmen. <laughs> 200 episodes, 200 episodes, the first time I end up stumbling. Yes, the, the IMF, uh, IMF negotiations. Drink up, drink up, my friend. The, the, uh, I'm, I'm inclined to believe that money is not the problem. But I don't know if that's, if that's being... And this is what I meant by devil's advocate. That, yes, I know the country is broke, and I know there's a desperate need for some injection for the well-being of people. Forget, forget everything else. But that said, I just don't think money will solve Lebanon's problems. And therefore, therefore, when the IMF deals don't go through, when negotiations break down, and I've actually had these people on the podcast, Henri Shaul and Alain Bifani. Henri came twice on the podcast. I watched it. Yeah. I thought you were great. Oh, I thank you, my friend. Thank you. I didn't have to quote them to them that often. <laughs> but, but the truth is, they, I mean, they're, they're, they're part of the negotiations team, so their mission is to try to get that money. But then you have news reports that the IMF is saying no, pretty much no, and that the Lebanese side is un, unable to deliver some common understanding, whatever. So there's, that doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon. But I also feel that this might be a good thing that it just forces the worst components of Lebanese politics to hopefully fade away. Hopefully. Do you share that sentiment? That, that without the IMF stepping in, it may actually have an unintended benefit, at least when it comes to the things we're talking about. That this is, this is potentially a way to force reform from within. And I, I say this as somebody who's fairly amateur on the economics issue in the finances but i'm seeing it more as a if there is going to be reform regardless of whether it's too late but if we're going to still have that hope for some kind of reform this may be an effective tool not to use against people but in a sense it's almost like saying no these politicians cannot count on us deal with your citizens and deal with the burden i think i you know it's something i'm i'm struggling to write because i'm i'm struggling to find the silver lining i think mm. it's a very privileged uh position to make and i've heard a lot of people say it in the sense no okay don't give us you know let's not fund lebanon etc etc uh, let's take the risk and let's shame these politicians uh, but that is exactly what was the tipping point for a lot of nations that were taken hostage by very bad 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 politicians afghanistan right. yeah. somalia Okay, Syria, that was the case in Syria. Sure, I mean, let's you know put them on a no-fly zone. No people should have to pay the price for bad politicians who weren't voted in in a fair and transparent manner. So I am okay with saying, sure, you know, IMF deal doesn't go through because politicians don't seem to have the competence. I am the first one to say that this government and everybody in it is not competent. But this privileged position to say, yeah, okay, withdraw. What do we do with 
a million Syrian refugees. Uh, what do we do with vulnerable Lebanese communities? What do we yep. do with the poverty-funded UNDP plan that's happening in the Ministry of Social Affairs? I feel like there's also in Arabic we call it shamete, and I think that donors are playing into it. Like, huh, you know, we told you, you know, your politicians aren't capable of reform; they are incompetent. Yeah, true, but you've also given them technical assistance for 30 years. So I am yet to yeah. develop a crystal clear position on this, but I think you know, withdrawing from a nation and making people pay for the mistakes of politicians shouldn't be happening, but that's exactly what happens always, all the time in history. So there is, I mean, the silver lining is there is maybe some benefit here. Maybe. To shame them at the expense of people who need the aid. Right. But more than that, it doesn't translate into anything positive. It's more just a, a, a humiliation of the regime. And I mean, because I'm, I'm trying to see whether or not this could actually affect local change. Beyond, yeah, it's very good. Because, yeah. yeah, it's very good because I'll tell you, I mean, you talked about 2007, 2008, 2012. The problem with the international community is that they were very much supporting at least one side or both sides of Lebanon. And it's a good thing that they withdraw the support and they say that they are incompetent. Right. But the right, cost right. of that might be for a lot of NGOs that do well, you know, a lot of NGOs that are working on, you know, mental health and, and people's food and all of that. And I think the cost of that is to go through 10 years of poverty. And I don't think that's a fair that's a fair bargain to make. Right, to shame I see. Them at the expense of international community withdrawing is what I'm saying. So the bargain may not be fair, but that is the silver lining at the end of the day is that there is some humiliation. But, sure. the, but for the those of us who can afford it. Right. Okay. Well said. Yeah, I like that perspective actually, because that is you know if you end up writing this piece, I think it's it, that that kind of expresses both sides in a way that it justifies feeling that kind of. It's an embarrassment, and therefore there are consequences to them. But also it shows that there's a desperation at play, and people should not be played with in that sense. It's a hard, it's a hard conversation to have because you yeah. want to champion national sovereignty. You don't want to say that reform needs to be dictated from abroad. At the same time, you at the local level have now no power to impose reform. Right. So what exactly are we asking for? That we right. want the EU to interfere? Of course not. But at the same time, the fact that the EU withdraws, you know what that means? Like... For tons of NGOs, for tons of people waiting for water, waiting for freaking vaccines. I mean, that is not, I mean, that is a very scholarly opinion to have. Right. But I'm not waiting for Ministry of Social Affairs to distribute, you know, food and water. Right? Yeah. No, I well said. Carmen, there's two more points I want to get into. And the first is, I'm curious about your own relationship uh, to AUB and your parents' relationship to AUB and maybe some conversations you've had over the years. As much as you'd like to share, um, you seem, from my understanding and reading you, carefully reading you, over and over and over, tattooing your quotes Apparently on the, so. at night, sort of re, 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 memorizing what you've said and kind of saying it to myself and speaking to the walls. And I have posters of you all over the place and, you know, the, the usual. Not of me, of my articles. That's fine. But you told me to worship you first and then the articles. I, I misunderstood. <laughs> I mean, I, well, okay, I'll, I'll keep putting the candle above your, below your photo. Anyway, but the, <laughs> I'm trying, Carmen. I'm trying. If this is what it takes to be your friend, this sucks. <laughs> of course. I mean, you know, I said you're a better host than a friend, but that was fair enough, just fair you know, it's public. <laughs> I hope by the end I of this, hope I, I hope. About the AUB. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, it seems to me that you're confessional power sharing is, in, is 
there's not one bone within you in terms of sectarianism or, or this, this structure Lebanon has sort of inherited and kept for a long time. So I get the feeling, I think I'm right in this, that you don't have any inkling towards communal power sharing as a form of governance. You may be open to kind of a Senate or maybe like a preservation of communities in, in a symbolic way. But in, ter- in terms of pure politics, you don't want to see quotas. You don't want to see that kind of thing that Lebanon is famous for. And I, I share the same aspiration. So I hope I hope I have that right. After knowing you well, for some time... We're not going to agree, but it's great well, that you agree. Yeah. I mean, I... This is a bit offhand, but I, I think the Senate does solve a lot of those problems and the Senate never came to be. But that's... It seems like there's the... It's not rocket science here. How to preserve communal tensions, whatever they are now, and also let politics play its role in a healthy way rather than a detrimental way. So that that's one thing. Do you sense the Civil War years and your parents and your relationship to them and their memories of the Civil War? Do you sense that back then, in the most difficult times in, in Lebanon's history, the city's divided, the country's divided, there's stretches of no electricity, no one's collecting the trash, they're throwing it into the sea. So there's a, I mean, there are worse phases in recent memory. Do you sense that they had the same feeling, that they were ready to abandon this kind of model? Or do you think it mattered more to them back then, that they didn't see the model as a problem per se, that they were able to maybe blame certain things, maybe about the model, or maybe even certain players at different stages, but that power sharing, the way we understand it, wasn't an issue to them. I'm going back now maybe to the 1980s, darker years in Lebanese history. Do you sense from them that they that they had that kind of belief that a civil state or a secular state or whatever you want to call it would better replace what we have? Or is there a disconnect between you and, and that generation? Um, do you think that there is like more to blame the people versus the model itself? Is that what you're insinuating? And the model may not be so bad. Having Christian Muslims, you know, co-govern isn't so bad. But it happens that these people were so corrupted. Is that the insinuation? No, no, no. You mis- misunderstood me. No insinuation. Sorry, I can go ahead. Sorry, sorry. No, no. I meant in terms of the aspirations of somebody who wants Lebanon to change back then, 30 years ago. Wow, you're harsh, Carmen. Uh, I mean, no, 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 no. I was uh, just clarifying. So no, I answered no, no. the right, right. Yeah, no. I meant in terms of people that were in a phase of really yeah. uh, detrimental part of their history, and they wanted to end this chaos and uncertainty. Yeah. I, from the, for the most part today, I sense that the aspiration is to just overthrow the regime and get something new in its place. At least this is the conversations I have with most protesters. Not necessarily yeah, yeah. most people in the country. I'm talking about the people demanding change. Do you sense from people back then that wanted change, that they had that kind of ambition as well? Or was there, more, was there a healthier relationship with the governing structure itself? That they wanted. Yeah. That, in other words, the question comes down to reform versus revolution, and if that was something that they experienced thirty years ago during the war. Yeah, I, I feel that that binary doesn't apply. Uh, mm. I, I thought about it for a very long time. Here's here's what I think, and I might be wrong. A lot of people won't like this. I feel like the the key to change is actually within our system, but we didn't apply it. And and you know, I I talk to a lot of people outside Lebanon very often. So what's the problem? I said we need to implement the constitution for a while, for like four years. 
and then we need to ha actually have elections outside. We actually need the rule of law. And that's very, very different than what happened in, in the Arab uprisings in terms mm. of toppling mm. the regime and toppling the dictator. I might be wrong. I've thought about this. I've criticized people who ran for elections. Today, I think the only way for a peaceful transition to, into like power for these people to give up is actually to have a broad-based coalition of people that will win the elections, that will vote for a government that will then enact the Senate. I think that what we want is an implementation of a system. We don't have a system. But I guess maybe I'm asking you the wrong way. Do you think that that was a shared sentiment even with earlier generations, that they wanted that at the end of the day? They wanted a system that just that works? Because it's the, the demands are so basic at this point, so low. The bar, the, you're just talking about a functioning state that, that functions, basically. It's not like... It's not that somebody to pick up the garbage. Yeah, yeah. So, do you think that that was a common uh, feeling to the earlier generations? Is this like a persistent uh, demand over time, or in, in your mind, is this something that sort of is more recent that people are ready to abandon this way of governing? No, I mean, I think it's also how you were, how you were raised, and, and and you know, if your parents taught this, and whether in which area they were at, I think it's hard to speak for a group. And I should say, I'm not part of any political group. It's my opinion. Yeah. And I think that there was a uh, there was a sentiment, a very majority sentiment. I mean, I'll tell you what we teach students is like it doesn't take a majority to have a civil war, right? It takes it takes right. Hala, yeah. Ten people, ten people now. There's a war, right? Oh, uh, that's just Carmen drinking in public. No, no, I'm just saying, like, I'm just saying, like, the major, the majority. I mean, we talk about civil war, you know, how people look about uh, at Lebanon, all of that. It doesn't mean that the majority of people. And I was telling you in the beginning of the the chat about people living ordinary life, people falling in love, going, traveling, dreaming of a better state. Yeah. So I can't speak about that sentiment, but now the the, the general mood I feel, or at least. How I'm seeing it is that there's no way out. You know, when you demand a revolution and then a pandemic happens, it's like everything is up to up to bargain. Everything is up to discussion. And at least I feel that protesters and part of we want a minimum system that functions. Right. Even if you maintain parity, Christian, Muslim, that's not the problem in and of itself. And that's what I was trying to pick up on what you're right. saying. Right. You no, know, you have Christians and Muslims and power mashkal, yes. that they can't. I mean, that's the only way that they identify with constituency. So, yeah, I do feel that times are changing. But yeah, again, maybe that's my politics of hope. Sorry. No, no, but don't apologize. On the contrary, I, I you know, th th that. I maybe again. I, I didn't mean to ask it in a way that insinuates anything. On the contrary, I was curious because it seems like Lebanon has had enough time to make change. I mean, it's a hundred years ago that the borders were drawn. I mean, it's a century of of time, and we didn't change much. I did an episode recently with Mahayahya of Carnegie, and she really brought out a fantastic statement from Riyadh Salah in 1943. I, I think I remember this right. It's the first ministerial statement in Lebanon's history. It's 1943. The prime minister of the country is explaining the ills of sectarianism to the, to the parliament, to the, to the cabinet, to the government, saying we need to get rid of this. It sounded more like a foreign imposition on Lebanon. That, which may or may not be true, but that's not even the point. The point is that he wants it out. That's... that's 80 years ago, uh, yeah, my math, <laughs> 77 years ago. It's a long time. So we've had successive prime ministers, we've had successive governance, we've had civil wars, we've fought many different battles, and we've had periods of relative calm and relative growth. But there's been time to make changes that seem to be fundamental to changing, or at least improving, Lebanon. 
and we haven't touched any of that. That's why I was curious about those conversations, whether or not it's something that's just persisted over time. And I hope I'm, I got this right. Your, your father and your, your parents are AUB as well. They're AUB sort of legacy. So they're not, uh, they're not alien to this world, that they're part of it as well. I hope I got that right. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's that as well, that it's like a family tradition, if, if, you, if you will, that there's almost like reform in education and all of that is in your DNA. That's why I was curious about the, the linkage to previous generations. But, yeah, but I, they, didn't, they didn't stay as long as I did. I mean, I've stayed since right. so long, like since 2008. Uh, but I think, you know, you know, my, my thesis, my life's work has, has been about how the system resurrects itself. Even after a 17-year civil war, they right. came back, they made the same, the same deal. Yeah. But what I do feel is different this time because of economic collapse. And again, it's a privileged proposal to make or hypothesis to make. They can't deliver anymore on the system. Right. Lebanese right. people aren't racist by DNA. They're not stupid by DNA. They're not sectarian by DNA. They will go, they're rational human beings. The system has been able to deliver. Right now, nobody is picking up the garbage. The, That's the schools are closing. There is a spoils that they can't, they can't, they can't, they just can't. There's nothing to deliver. So that's, that's really the issue there. To yeah. be hopeful, to say, okay, well, this is the other viable alternative. Right. Is it neoliberalism? Is it not? Is it capitalism? Is it welfare? Whatever it is. Is it chaos? Is it Tawra for 10 years? Libya has been in revolution for what now? 10 years almost. Yeah. I mean, it's up to us to define that, but they cannot deliver. They have no legitimacy. People laugh at them, make fun of them. They go on a TV interview, people... We have the most cursed politicians in the whole world. That's true. That's a bit. I mean, it's, they cannot deliver. But every other juncture, they were able to deliver. Ottoman military system, the Ottomans said, no problem. You keep your religious courts, you keep your autonomy, great. 1943, same. 1975, same. 1989, same. 2005, also kind of same. Right. Sure, you right. disagree on regional politics, but kind of hang out and do this. No. Now, there's nothing to deliver. The That's, world is in ruins, and as is Lebanon. That's and people will change. It's up to us to say, okay, this is the other viable thing: sectarianism, sectarianism, power sharing, welfare, leftism, chaos, whatever it is, arms, harab. It's up to us to decide. But they can't deliver this time. Khalas. I like that. It's almost like you've you've pointed at the the thing that makes this moment stand out, as opposed to 1943 or 75 or whatever. I like that. It's just they can't deliver. That they were able to deliver to a point and satisfy the some needs of the population at any given moment, and now they can't. Did you hear any country where the IMF pulled out? The IMF's interest is to invest in countries like Lebanon. You know, actually, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know mm. if this has ever happened with the IMF, this repeated... I'm, I'm guessing it's not unique to Lebanon. There must have been some problems before. But, I mean, yeah, this level of public sort of embarrassment, if you will, I don't, I don't remember any story like this one, where the IMF seems to be on the side of, like... <laughs> It's almost like the IMF. Is the, the French foreign minister came and they were like, oh, why didn't you call us? I mean, it's tell yeah, us. It's yeah. over. So delivery. They cannot cash on this one. So that they were able to provide some services in the past and now they simply cannot provide anything is what makes this moment stand out. And because of that consequence, people's patience is over and whatever comes in its place will have to be by default something that delivers. It may be a more... It may be in the short term an uglier situation. It may be harder on everyone, but that delivery will have to be part of it. Otherwise, there's nothing. I mean, it's just sort of chaos and an ungoverning, situ ungovernable situation. No, I like I like that you kind of narrowed it down there. 
Um, I'm curious about your own relationship right now to your students at AUB. You're somebody that's been lecturing, I guess, on Zoom or online courses, I'm guessing. Um, do, you, I'm just, do you sense that you were this whole year has been so messy from the October uprising to COVID and now, and I guess fall semester is going to be mostly online, if I'm not mistaken, or there are going to be a lot of courses online as well. Do you sense that your impact remains consistent despite all the chaos? So do you still have that kind of ability to express your passion, your purpose, through your courses, given all that's happening, that, that may be the connectivity that we kind of talked about earlier, that you're still able to gauge and, and provide that side of professor relationship to your students? Or do you see this as kind of a really big sort of hurdle, that you need physical contact at the end of the day, that this only offers so much? Because you're one of the few professors I know, <clears throat> associate professor with tenure, that has uh, pulled through and, and is still hopeful despite everything. So just that kind of, has your relationship taken any sort of toll in terms of just relationship with your students? <laughs> Look, I, I never said I have an impact on them. I think AUB and the students have an impact on me. I mean, I don't want to be, right now, I mean, you know, the, the institution just fired 850 people. Yeah. A lot of people are really, really upset. It was it was very difficult to see, you know, the army staged outside. It's yeah. me who has to explain this to the students in, in four weeks. There's a lot that we do that isn't perfect, that isn't, that I like. It's a big institution, big bureaucracy. Yeah. Uh, I never said that I feel I have an impact on the students. I feel that they have an impact on me. I love the space. Uh, we grew up there. I feel like, um, and this is my own little uh, glitch, I feel like, I'm not going to stay in Lebanon if I'm not staying at AUB. And I'm not saying this to say I love the university because, you know, the missionaries, you know, did it in 1800s. I'm not trying to praise, you know, this administration or that. But for me, really, the, the, the space to think critically about all of these things, to think about gender issues really critically, uh, to make friends and meet friends from everywhere and nowhere, um, I'm really staying because of that. I don't imagine myself having a nine-to-five job, even if the economy mm. was normal. Yeah. So I'm really staying because of that. I feel that the students have impact on me. Um, we had an incredible year. I mean, the semester started in September and October. Uh, we issued a statement. We said that the classes have moved into the streets, and the streets are now the classes, and right. the students are our teachers. And we just completely opened it up. And, um, you know, when I saw what was happening with Black Lives Matter, a lot of colleagues in the U.S., like, how did you do it? And you know, catering to multiple audiences. So it inspires me and it gives me something to think about. Voila, I feel we're at the intersection of rethinking everything. What do you teach? How do you teach? Perhaps everybody should study agriculture. I don't know. But I feel really excited to, to wake up every day and I feel that I belong. That's not to say that everything that happens is perfect. And uh, I don't know if I inspire the students, but they inspire me. And I wouldn't be in Lebanon if it weren't for that, frankly. No, but um, I'm, I'm glad you're kind of also admitting something. You know, this is a healthy admission. I think also, I mean, AUB is fundamental to my life. I don't teach there. I was a student there. But I, I consider it as Beirut is not Beirut without AUB. And in your case, maybe your career is yeah. not a career without AUB too. So it's almost yeah, like... Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. not... I, you, you know, we were talking about this before the episode. I could work anywhere. But I feel really a lot, a lot of meaning doing this here. And, yeah. and as far as it's on its two feet, I want to be part of the story. That's not to say, you know, everything that happens. And, and the students are incredible. They, they you, you need to ponder on this. They don't have the same scars. They don't have the same memories. Right, exactly. And they're able to talk about money and love and travel and politics and war in a very, very different manner. 
Yeah. For me, that is the hope. Well said, Carmen. So, I appreciate your time. Um, I want to catch up with you later. We'll give it. We'll give it some time. Uh, I enjoy these conversations with you. Uh, I think you do provide some um, some insight to your students. I think you provide insight to me. You're younger than me. You shout at me. You scold me. But I learn from you, so I actually am learning. I'm young by quite a bit. I mean, five years is a lot. Four and a half. I don't know about that. <laughs> we have to go. That's a little too much. But we'll round it up for you, five. But no, I, I think AUB is better with you. And uh, for that reason and for other reasons, I enjoy these conversations. So thank you, Carmen. Thanks, Ronnie. It was inspiring as usual. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>